turn, if you would, to Philippians, the letter to the Philippians. And we will have a word of prayer while we're turning there. Philippians, four short chapters, just pregnant with truth to help us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to sustain us, to bring about gospel unity among God's people, to bring about rejoicing, to bring about help, and to bring about hope. So let's pray and ask God to to bring that word to our hearts. And that this word would come alive and on fire in our souls. Father, we thank you for the letter to the Philippians. We thank you, Lord God, that you inspired this letter from a prison cell in your apostle, your holy apostle. Once was Saul, now is Paul. And he is writing a God-breathed word for the Philippians, but also for us and for your glory, and to encourage and empower and strengthen your people. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be upon this message. I pray that you would open our eyes to see glorious things from this passage to get help, to get encouragement, to get hope and joy as we think about this great letter, as we think about what this letter did in the souls of the Philippians that this letter ministered to the hearts of a whole church over generations and then down through the ages, you have been blessing your people again and again when they come to this book, when they come to this letter, they receive strength, they receive hope, they receive help. And I pray God that your spirit would minister to us today and that you would help us as I have been greatly helped this week, that you would encourage us and that you would bring a word to us that is tailored right for where we're at, right where we're, with what we're going through, that we'd get the help of God in our souls. And we pray that you would bless this word in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you'll remember, the letter to the Philippians was a prison epistle, and it was written to a church that was the first church to be planted in Europe, And God begins a gospel work in a pagan polytheistic society in the Philippian church. And now Paul's writing 10 years later. And so I'm thinking about this and and, um, meditating on this this week. And I was just encouraged as I was praying with my wife last night and thinking about this next part of what we're going to enter into in this letter. And I was thanking the Lord in prayer because I'm praying with my wife 20 years after I was saved, largely because God had put on my wife's heart a desire to pray for me with my grandma because I wasn't a believer. I was like Paul, an enemy of the gospel, did not care about Christianity, and then my wife and my grandma have a prayer meeting and they're praying gospel-soaked prayers for me and then God saves me. 
And then my relationship with my wife begins as a friendship where we're just talking about the Lord. We have the Lord in common. And though I didn't know her at all, she was a girl who lived on my street. But God had ordained that she would be living there so that she would be praying for me, that I would one day get saved. Then we'd be praying together to begin our relationship, just praying with gospel-centered focus and a mutual fellowship in Christ. And those prayers would go on and on. Eventually we get married and we're still praying year after year with those gospel-soaked, joyful, grateful prayers, just thanking God for the miracle that he worked in both of us and that we're in Christ together. And I just marveled at that last night as I'm thinking about this because that's kind of like what Paul is doing in this letter to the Philippians as he opens up. He wants to thank God for the work that the Lord has done in the Philippian believers with a joyful exuberance in his heart. And he's recalling this work. He's recalling their partnership in the gospel. He's recalling the hope they have together and their partnership in the advance of the gospel. And that's what my wife and I were about. Like our whole friendship was based on Jesus, was radiating around the gospel, and we were about that mission. And God has kept us for 20 years. And Paul is celebrating that same reality in the miracle that happened in the Philippian church. And so today we're going to talk about this little opening section. It's just verses three to six. And we're going to walk through this passage and you're going to see gospel gratitude. You're going to see gospel joy. You're going to see gospel fellowship. You're going to see gospel perseverance at work, just in the way Paul is artic articulating how he prays for the Philippians and the basis of that prayer in the fellowship and partnership they have in the gospel. So let's look at our text. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We're going to read the next two verses. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Such is the heart of the Apostle Paul for his people. He just, he exploded with gratitude when he considered him. So point number one is just gospel gratitude. You see it in verse three. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So every time he's thinking about the Philippians from a jail cell, he's just 
praising God with glorious gratitude because of the mighty work that he did in saving a pagan polytheistic people. Remember Lydia? She's just standing there at the riverside praying. God opens her heart to receive the things Paul said. Remember the Philippian jailer? Rugged gets cut to the heart as God opens the whole prison up and the apostle could have walked out scot-free, but he stays to evangelize that man. And so Paul is remembering with a flood of gratitude in his heart towards the Philippians because of this great work that God had done. Every member of the Philippian church was brought out of darkness into the marvelous light of God. Every single person was once dead and was brought to life spiritually. Every single Philippian was not worshiping the true and living God. And they turned from idols to worship the true and living God because the Spirit of God came upon the gospel and it was like life-giving truth just piercing their hearts. And a church exists and endured for 10 years and continued because of the miraculous work of gospel advance and gospel partnership. And Paul is just thanking God. And it's not like the Philippian church is doing nothing for these 10 years. They just partnered with him. They've been sharing the gospel. They've been about the business of the gospel. And so Paul can recall them every time they come in his brain. I just thank you, God. I thank you for these people. I thank you for this dear, beloved people that I yearn for in my heart. They're my joy and my crown. And I thank you, Lord. I thank my God because he knew it was his God who did it. So what about us? When we consider the work that's happening here, does gratitude fill your heart? When you think about the miraculous preservation of a people here, does joy and gr gratitude and thanksgiving well up in your soul? Because God has been saving people ever since 1802 when this church was planted. God has been doing that. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. God is at work and he's still at work. And as long as we are faithful to the gospel, as long as we continue to be faithful as a people, oh, spiritual miracles will happen in the hearts of people all around us because of the witness, because of the partnership. And we need the heart of Paul towards one another. We need the heart of the Philippians. We need a heart ablaze with the gospel that deeply understands that miracles need to happen in order for us to be in the kingdom at all. And perhaps you're here and, and you need that miracle to happen in your heart. You need to be in touch with God. You need to hear the beauty that Jesus Christ died for your sins if you will believe. 
that he rose out of the the dead. He rose out of the grave three days later because he is the king, because death could not hold him, because God would not let his Holy One see corruption. Because Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins and to rescue us perfectly. And that gospel truth is what saved the Philippian church and began a work that endured. And so Paul has the flavor of gratitude from a prison cell. And and let's just learn from that that we can be grateful and have gratitude in our hearts no matter our circumstances. Sometimes it's like, I'm only going to be grateful if like a good thing happens today. But miracles are happening all the time in your life. The fact that you're breathing. The fact that God's kept you this long. I, I just marvel that I'm still a Christian because God has kept me. If I was left to myself, and we're going to talk about this later, Who knows what would happen? But God's preserving power has been on me. And you too, if you're a believer. Point number two. Gospel joy. So we'll we'll look at verse three and four and kind of see how they connect. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you making my prayer with joy. So Paul is actually always in every prayer for the Philippians, making it with joy. Joy is the distinguishing mark and flavor of his prayer life. And I'm just like, Paul, I want that. I want that joyful, exuberant, prayer life that's not consumed with the petty squabbles and bittering or bickering and bitterness that can come up in church life. Paul would encourage us to pray joyfully for our brother and sister. No matter what, you know why? Because they're partners in the gospel with us. That's powerful. And he prayed often joy-soaked prayers for the church he planted at Philippi. And Paul was like a spiritual father to them. So I was thinking about this. A couple weeks back, we had uh, the baptism of faith. We had all the laymans here. It was like the layman crew in the front. But I will tell you something. There was something distinctly beautiful when I looked at Neil and I saw the father's joy radiating off of his face. Because he knew what was happening. He knew we were recognizing the work of God in his daughter to bring her out of darkness into light. And it produced joy in her soul or in his soul and in her soul. A mutual joy, right? So God did a work and it brought joy to Neil's heart to see what God had done. And in the same way, that's what Paul is experiencing when he's praying. He's got joy in his heart. This is his spiritual. These are like his spiritual babies. He was the one who led them to Christ, most of them. And he had a joy in his heart. Maybe some of you are hearing, you're like, I remember when so-and-so got saved. I remember when uh, one of the pots got saved. I remember when one of the grices got saved. I remember 
when one of the crowders got saved. And I rejoice, right? Powerful, glorious works. The Holy Spirit active in the body of Christ. And Paul is just thanking God with the joy of a father. Is that joy present in our hearts when we consider our brothers and sisters in this room, maybe not in this room? Do we have joy in our hearts and do we pray that kind of joy? Joyful prayer. Because we know the gospel broke into people's lives. And it, the gospel has a way of just breaking down bitterness, rivalry, dissension. It breaks it down. Because you can't hold a grudge and be unforgiving towards your brother and sister if you know that God has forgiven you so much. It breaks that down. Gratitude, joy begin to come. Because you know you have been forgiven much. You can't withhold that from your brother or sister. And joy begins to melt away those petty things that maybe have divided us. And, and we'll see that there was a little bit of dissension in Philippi. But Paul's commending them for the joy that they are. And, and they work through those things. And they recall the gospel. There's a gospel-centeredness about this church. This church is like a darling church for Paul. He loves them. They're his crown, his joy. They're, they don't have as many of the, the, the problems that we see in like Corinthians. You know, the church at Corinth was a mess. The church at Galatia was kind of teetering on some false doctrine. And he has to speak a word of rebuke. But you get joy. You get love. You get this yearning affection coming out in Philippians, right? Verse 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. What does that mean? You're my fellow Christians who've experienced grace that saved you. And you've been with me both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse eight, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with affection with the affection of Christ. Paul just had an affection for the Philippians. And may that be our prayer. Lord, give me a heart filled with affection for my brothers and sisters at Smithfield. May God grant us that deep, sweet, abiding Christian love and hospitality and joy. And our prayer life is just flavored that way. And that's what's happening with Paul. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's like Paul wants us to know something. He's got a little drum beat going. Rejoice in the Lord. So our joy is tied to the gospel. If you feel like I don't have a lot of joy in my life, it's because you're not meditating on the gospel if you're a believer. That's as simple as that. But if you meditate on the gospel, if you remember who you are, if you remember what Christ did on a cross, if you remember that you have a powerful resurrected king who's reigning over all, who sits at the right hand of God, and one day he will come back and he will judge the world in righteousness, gather his people and make them totally new. That will produce joy in your heart. 
That will produce joy in your soul. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Is it glad tidings? Just means good news. But glad tidings of good news. So, when we consider our brothers and sisters in the Lord, and when we pray for them, is it a duty or a delight? And may God work in us that delight as we come before the throne of grace on behalf of our brothers and sisters. Well, we've already kind of hinted at what motivates this kind of joy and gratitude and prayer. What is bubbling up at the surface here in Paul's heart that's causing this? What's the grounds? And it's their fellowship in the gospel. So point number three is gospel fellowship. Look at verse five, but actually we'll back up to three and we're just going to kind of read it through and watch it build like a locomotive. Okay. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is rejoicing in the Philippians partnership. And if you've heard the term koinonia, that's the Greek term for a fellowship or a partnership or a committedness, a shared vision. Now you can have koinonia around almost anything when it comes to just a shared vision. When I was in the Marine Corps, we had a shared vision. I mean, we all went through boot camp. We all went through the hell of boot camp, the, 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 the difficulties, the labors, the drill instructors with spit coming out of their mouths all over you, you know, yelling at you, wearing you out. And by the end of it, all of us had been through something that brought us together when we were brothers, band of brothers. And we go everywhere together. Everybody was green, you know, in the Marine Corps. And ultimately there was a sense of unity there, but it wasn't gospel unity. It wasn't, it was natural because there was a shared experience. What I'm talking about here, what Paul is talking about and what the New Testament is talking about is a gospel unity that comes from a shared vision of Christ as King and Lord and sovereign Lord of your life. It's he's the one who brought you out of darkness into light. He's the one who made your heart alive to God. He's the one who the spirit of Christ blew into your life and opened your eyes to the truths that you're a sinner in need of a savior. Opened your eyes to the truths that God is so good. And even though he made us originally good, we fell from that. We corrupted ourselves and we live for ourselves until God resets us. By making us born again, giving us a new heart, bringing us into his family. And that kind of unity is life transforming, life sustaining, soul stirring unity. And God wants you to know from this passage that any partnership in the gospel that is going to last has to come from a spiritual rebirth in your soul. From something happening because the gospel hit you like a ton of bricks and your eyes have been opened. 
and you have a shared fellowship with other believers that goes deeper than the band of brothers, that I am closer even to my brother and sister in Christ than my blood family members. Unless they're believers, then it's a double whammy. So there's a, there's a, there's a reason why we're calling the church family all through the New Testament, that we use the term brother and sister. Because there's a gospel fellowship happening. Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day, the day the Philippians got saved, until now, Paul says, this unity has been present. This fellowship has been present. This sacrificial community centered around the gospel has been a part of your life. But we also see in this letter that the Philippians did more than merely celebrate the gospel or have the gospel in common, but the gospel began to work itself out in their lives, in the way they lived, in the way they saw their money, in the way they, they saw one another, in the way they partnered in getting the gospel out to the city around them. So look with me, chapter 4, verse 15, we get a little hint of this, and it's the same word being used, this partnership. Chapter 4, verse 15, Paul says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you. And he's talking about financially supporting Paul. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for, uh, for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So Paul's like, what I'm after is your godliness. What I'm after is the blessing you're going to get by giving sacrificially to the cause of mobilizing the gospel and supporting him as an apostle, even in chains. You're going to get a blessing when you do that. It's a partnership that goes deep, that has a committedness that runs deep, that affects everything. How we use our time, how we use our resources, what we schedule, what is important to us. Does the gospel reorient that? It did for the Philippians. And as you see in verse 7, uh, in 18, he says, I have received full payment and more, and I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. So they send a brother to Paul with gifts to serve and bless him while he's in prison to make sure he's cared for because they care about Paul. This is a, a mutual relationship. This is a gospel warmth. This is, a, this is why he loves them because they're just all about the gospel. What do we got to do? And I think about like, what can we do as a church as we're thinking about gospel to every home? How can we partner in the gospel? Well, I'll tell you the first thing that we can do is is... Be a part of Wednesday night trainings if, if you want to learn how to share the gospel or if you want to think about how are we doing this as a church. I encourage you to come to that. I encourage you to be a part of that and be praying for that. Be praying and, 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 and asking the Lord, how might you be used as we mobilize to bring the gospel to our city? And then how can you be intentional about ordering your schedule and your priorities to be about the gospel. The Philippians just, it was like, game on, let's do this. And so I want to encourage us, let's, let's be praying. 
God, give us those kinds of hearts. Give us that kind of heart that's just about partnering in the gospel. And Paul had nothing in common with the Philippians when you think about it. He was a rabbinic Jew who hated Gentiles at one time. And they're Gentile pagans living in all sorts of licentiousness and, and, and rebellion against God. And so they're like oil and water. And then the gospel gets a hold of them. And they're like, not only simpatico, it's like this is God at work in all of us. And we have a mission. And we're going to take the gospel to the nations. And the gospel begins to move through Asia, or not Asia, Europe, like a wildfire because this kind of gospel community and gospel fellowship was happening and it had been happening for 10 years. Is that what unites us at Smithfield? Is that the kind of thing that supernatural fellowship, that, that totally outside ourselves breaking in supernatural fellowship that begins to promote unity and encouragement and grace and joy and gratitude welling up in our hearts. And we need each other to remind each other of the gospel, remind each other of these truths, these blessings, these joys when we lose sight of them. And that's partly what Paul's doing. He's writing a letter to remind the Philippians of what they already know so that their joy can be full and they can be praying in the same way for him as he is for them. And that same joy can be experienced. And that same partnership will continue and continue. So how do we... We've seen... The gospel producing joy in Paul's heart, gratitude in Paul's heart over the Philippians, and this partnership that's the grounds of it all. But how do we actually sustain that? Can you just work that up? Can you just like, by your own willpower, I'm just going to be more committed. How many times have you said that and it fizzled out? So, point number four, gospel perseverance. We need help. We need supernatural help. We need God to do a work. So look at verse 6. And I am sure of this, Paul says. I'm certain of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Or of Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? <laughs> Let's read it again. And I'm sure of this. It's a fixed certainty. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This is a rock solid bedrock truth that Paul banks on. And he does not worry about the Philippians because he knows God's going to complete the work. God began it. God will complete it. No one's going to snatch any one of his children from his hands. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And no one will be snatched from my hand. Not one of them. He's not going to lose one. He's sure of this. Sitting in a prison cell, he's sure of it. If anything was going to shake somebody, it'd probably be sitting in a Roman dungeon 
shackled to some guard for preaching the gospel after you probably got beat up for like the bazillionth time. And Paul's just like, "Mm -mm. my God began it. He's going to complete it. My God did the work. He started the work. He's going to finish the work. So gospel unity and gospel fellowship that is spirit born in our hearts will continue. And the work he began in saving you, God will most assuredly complete. And we notice it's God who begins the work. Paul says something similar, except he uses the word calling in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are are so that no human being might boast in his presence and because of him you are in christ jesus who became to us the wisdom from god righteousness and sanctification and redemption so it is written let the one who boasts boast in the lord god called you out of whatever you were in whatever sin whatever struggle whatever station he called you And he's using you to confound those who do not know Christ, that they might see and look and be like, what is going on here? What is happening? This is a different community. This is a community filled with love, filled with joy, filled with gratitude. It doesn't look anything like the world. Because something powerful was begun by God in calling you out of darkness into light, calling you from being selfish me-centered, thankless, joyless, totally depressed into a joyful, gratitude-laden, grateful people that love God and love one another and love the world even when they're your enemies sometimes. Jesus says, love your enemies. How does that happen unless God began a work in you? And so when I think about this idea of God begins a work, and he's going to complete it. I just think about myself for a second and I go, I can't, I, I, there's so many projects that I began. Can y'all relate? And you didn't complete. There's so many books that I've left unread. There's so many puzzles that I started and I was like, eh, no, not going to do that. Um, but God's not like that. He will always complete what he starts. And if he started a work in you, he will complete it. Are you struggling, brother, because you think that God is not going to come through for you? Are you struggling, sister, because you feel like, I don't know if this is going to, is God going to be faithful again? If he started the work, he'll complete it. He will grow you. And, and, And this also has to do with sanctification. This has to do with making you more like Christ. So God's actually going to make you more holy. Some of that's going to be some growing pains. Some of that's going to be God's not going to let you be like the world. He will mold and shape you to be more like Christ. He will continue to work in your life. And sometimes he'll order your life to make you more like Jesus. And sometimes that means getting thrown in prison. Sometimes that means 
having a difficult situation in the family or at work, but God will see the work through in you. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So our confidence is not in us, but it's in Christ. And it's in God finishing his work. Look at this language at the end of verse 6. When is it going to come to completion? You ever wonder that? Like, what is he talking about? At the day of Jesus Christ. So when is that going to happen? It's when Jesus comes back. And brother, brothers and sisters, listen, Jesus is coming back again. There's going to be a day that he comes back and he will judge the world in righteousness, in holiness, as king. And he will gather his people and he will glorify his bride. And they will be spotless and without blemish. And they will be transformed and they will be glorified. And the work that was started will come to consummation and you will shine like the sun. You won't even recognize yourself in some ways because you'll be radiant in Christ. And you'll be casting crowns at his feet if you are faithful if you have lived for him, if you've partnered in the gospel, you will be delighting on this day. This is the day of Jesus Christ. And Paul actually prays. So you're wondering, like, what do I do? Is there something I do? Well, Paul prays that these things happen. He knows God's promising it. I'm sure of this. So he's going to pray. Verse 9. Verse 9 says this. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ. Just because God promises it doesn't mean we don't pray for it. That's God's ordained means for bringing about what he has promised. The people of God praying the promises of God back to God. God loves to answer that prayer. Fill your hearts with the promises of God and watch him do glorious work. He'll keep you. Pray that he keeps you. Pray like this. God, I know you promised that you're going to keep me. Would you keep me? I know you promised that you'll make me holy. Would you help me grow in godliness? Pray like Paul. It's powerful. It's joy producing. It produces gratefulness in your heart. And it is a powerful uniting force in the fellowship and partnership we have in the gospel. When we know that God will finish the work he began in his church, just like Paul's confident he'll finish it in the lives of the Philippian church. Because the fellowship in the gospel is at the center of everything they do. Is that our relationships? Is the gospel the center, the blazing center of all that we do? Is that our passion? Is Jesus at the center of every relationship you have in Christ? So I love to tell a story about how God saved me. 
because you, it's so wild. I would never have thought that my grandma would live two doors down from my future wife. And my grandma always used to tell me, you're going to be a preacher, Peter, you know, and then she has a prayer meeting with my future wife to pray for my salvation. And I get saved a few years later. And then I start a friendship with my wife that turns into a marriage. And we've been praying the gospel ever since over each other's lives. We've been gospeling each other. We've been encouraging each other. We've been filled with that joy and that gratitude every time we think about the miraculous. What are the odds that that happens by accident? That's sovereign purpose. And my dear friends, listen, that same sovereign purpose is at work in you. If God saved you, if God be for us, who can be against us? If he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how much more will he freely give us everything we need with Christ? God did a work in your heart, if you're a child of God, to bring about a sweet gospel partnership in the church so that the gospel could advance and your joy could be full and your gratitude could be lavish unto God. And he gets all the glory and you get all the joy. And what a blessing that is. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this letter. It's just so filled with encouragement. It's so filled with words that we need with help we need. It teaches us how to pray. It teaches us how to think. It teaches us who we are. It produces a joyful reality in our souls. And we have such great help from the apostle and from your people that we've seen in the book of Philippians. They brought the gospel to their city, to their country. And beyond. And I pray that you would do that work in us. I pray, God, that you would bless us as we focus on these things, as we build upon these things, and that your spirit would breathe hope and life and encouragement into us. And that there would be a great gratitude and joy filled prayer bubbling up in our souls as we think about the partnership we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.